everyone, this is Wayne, and this is the Greenfield Podcast. And this episode is a little different than our normal episodes. It's a reading about something that happened to me a few months ago. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but I do want to say that as I go to trial and as the jury deliberates on my fate this week, this podcast will demonstrate how it all started for me. And how it all started, quite simply, is with love. So anyways, without further ado, here it is. Thanks so much for listening. Lessons on love from a killer. She was born from violence. Only one thing could save her. By Wayne Chung. My best friend was born to kill. It was not her choice and perhaps not her fault. But she has a history of violence that would make a serial killer squirm. There was the time she ripped open someone's head and left their ear hanging from a string of skin. Or the time she grabbed her victim's throat so tightly that the screams went silent. It was like someone hit the mute button on a horror movie. But perhaps the worst incident occurred in my own home. I came back to my apartment one day to blood on the kitchen floor. I heard whimpering from the bedroom. What the hell is going on? I said. I rushed in and saw my best friend's sister on the ground with her face sliced half open. I rushed her to the hospital where her cheek was surgically rebuilt. The perpetrator showed no remorse for the attack. You might be wondering why I'm friends with someone like this. The easiest answer is that my best friend is a dog. To be precise, an American Staffordshire Terrier rescued from a dog fighting circle. And so are her victims. They're all dogs. But the easiest answer is often not the best one. And here's the right answer. Yusi is my best friend because she taught me what it means to love. I'm writing this now with tears in my eyes because Lisa's journey has come to an end 14 years after she came into my life from an industry so sadistic that it can only operate in the dark. She collapsed on a walk on Wednesday evening and stopped breathing. Her co-parent Priya was walking with her when it happened. Priya called me crying and said that something terrible had happened. When I arrived at the hospital, just 20 minutes after that call, it was already too late. The doctor came out to tell us that her little heart had given out. I didn't get to say goodbye. But what I cannot say to her, I will say for her. I've written about Lisa's past before. And the terrible mistake I made that nearly cost Lisa her ability to walk. But there are some key parts of Lisa's life that I've not shared publicly. Now is the time to do that. Not just to honor Lisa's memory, but because there are lessons in those stories that the world needs to hear. When I adopted Lisa, I did not expect her to be a killer. She was just a puppy, and I believed the rescue mantra. There are no bad dogs, just bad owners. I knew the circumstances from which Lisa was taken. A Chicago dogfighting circle were cruel and violent. The scars on her face and body at the age of just three months were evidence of that. 
Belisa was the most timid of the puppies in her litter, and when I brought her to my apartment, she was scared of even my cats. With a responsible guardian, I thought, she would overcome her past. No one will ever hurt you again, I promised Lisa. Everybody loves you. The first weeks went well. Lisa would bounce around like a bowling ball, knocking my three cats and my other dog into each other. But she never got angry when her new family members hissed, scratched, or growled. She would chomp her food so energetically with a vertical head-jerking motion that sent a smelly brown mixture of food, saliva, and who knows what else flying everywhere. While she would take everyone else's food and sometimes she would take the cat's feces, she never seemed to mind if others took her food. Slowly, all my furry children developed not just tolerance, but friendship. It was a beautiful thing. But maybe the most remarkable thing was Lisa's desire to be with me. Lisa had no business being attached to a human being. She was raised in a cage by a man who wanted her to fight to the death. And yet from the very first night in my home, her fear was overcome by something even more powerful. Love. See, Lisa never knew a kind touch from a human being, but instinctively, she wanted it more than anything in the world. And so on that first night, she would dart back and forth, coming close to me, then running away in fear. When she saw I was gentle, she would come closer, first a paw on my lap, as I sat cross-legged, then a quick lick on the hand. Before I knew it, she had crawled all the way into my lap and buried her little head into my chest as I stroked it. The fear was gone, replaced by love. For the next 14 years, that never changed. Lisa wanted, now she needed to love and to be loved. As you can guess, it was an easy choice to adopt. On the day I made it official, I took her aside and repeated my promise. No one will ever hurt you again, I said. Everybody loves you, Lisa, especially your dad. I wish I could say that sense of peace and love was the end of the story, but as Lisa's confidence grew, something changed. First, she began to play a little too aggressively at the dog park, chasing after and nipping the other pups. Then about six months after adoption, Lisa got into her first fight. I don't know how it started. When I saw it, she had gripped the dog's neck with her jaws and pinned him to the ground. For 20 seconds, she would not let go. The dog's shrieks didn't deter her. As people around me shouted and screamed, I managed to pull Lisa away. But I felt for a scary moment that Lisa was trying to kill. And while there are no serious injuries, the dog's guardian was furious. You need to leave right now, he shouted, and don't come back. The people around him nodded. There was judgment in their eyes and shame in mine. Everybody still loves you, I said to Lisa. She looked nervous and confused. Everybody loves you. They just don't know you like I do. 
But it was just days later when that promise was challenged even for me. My other dog, Natalie, was very fond of going to the beach where I would toss balls out to the water for Natalie to swim out and fetch. Lisa was scared of the water and stayed on the shore. But when she saw a little dog chase after Natalie's ball on a morning a few days after the incident at the dog park, it was like a switch went off in her head. Her tail went stiff, her eyes were bloodshot, and she shot towards the other dog, cutting through the water that she had previously feared, like a speedboat slicing through the waves. The little dog had no chance. Lisa dug her teeth deep into the dog's head and ripped at his flesh. The dog's efforts to turn his head and bite her back were futile. Lisa had pinned him to the ground, belly up, with her front paws in his chest. With a foot of water beneath us, the dog was slowly being drowned. I ran towards the fight and shouted that I needed help. But the dog's guardian was standing about 100 feet away on the beach with his mouth open in shock. Lisa, you have to stop, I screamed as I attempted to grab her. Stop right now. I tried everything I could think of to pull Lisa off. I picked her hind legs up like a wheelbarrow, but she just continued her attack by balancing on her front legs. I put my hands between Lisa's jaws, gripping each side of her mouth by the teeth and used every ounce of my strength to pull. But that just left puncture wounds in my fingers and hands. Her jaws barely budged. Finally, I tried grabbing her collar and choking her, placing so much torque on her neck that I was afraid I would break it. But Lisa just gasped for air the moment I let up and proceeded with the attack. So I decided that I needed to knock Lisa out. I held her collar with my left hand and I brought the force of my right fist into her skull as hard as I could, screaming like a barbarian. I did it again and again and again and again, each time with a resounding crack. On the fifth or so blow, Lisa yelped and crumpled. The other dog was free, shrieking and seriously wounded with his shredded ear dangling from his head. He scampered back to his guardian who quickly picked him up and ran away. I collapsed onto Lisa in a bloody, watery heap. What the fuck are you doing? I screamed at her. What the fuck is wrong with you? Fearful of what she might do next, I picked her up from the water. I called out to the other dog and guardian to see if he was okay, but they were nowhere to be seen. So I started the quarter-mile walk back to my home, carrying Lisa with Natalie trailing behind us. So I started the quarter-mile walk back to my home, carrying Lisa with Natalie trailing behind us. I was exhausted and in pain. Looked at my hands. There were multiple puncture wounds that seemingly went halfway to the bone. Swelling was setting in below my right pinky finger, and I'd later discover a broken metacarpal bone in my hand. Shirtless, blood-covered, and carrying a partially concussed dog, I was a sight to see. People stared or went across the street as we approached. I must have looked like an axe murderer, caught in the act. But I was too tired and hurt to care. The greatest pain was in my heart. I realized I had made a terrible mistake. I'd adopted a killer into my home.
When we arrived at the apartment, I put Lisa in the bathroom away from the rest of the family. I started looking through my contacts to see if there was a pit bull rescue that could take her back or at least hold her for a few days. I didn't feel safe with her in my home. Lisa whined pitifully from the bathroom. At first, I just ignored her, but the whines grew louder. You don't deserve any love, I yelled. I stomped over to the bathroom and shouted through the door, What the fuck, Lisa? What the fuck? That quieted her for a moment. Within seconds, the whining just began again. And when it reached a fever pitch, Lisa's cries sound like someone is torturing her. I gave in and entered the bathroom. Lisa ran away from me to the corner of the bathroom the moment I walked in. Her face was bloodstained and there was a lump growing where I punched her repeatedly. Her head was low to the ground, even as she stared up at me. Her body was leaning up against the wall and bent into an upside-down U-shape, as if she were draped on her own shame. Her eyes were alert and nervous, twitching to the side every few moments. But they'd always come back to my eyes. And the message her eyes sent was clear. I'm scared, Dad. Why are you screaming? Why are you mad? Lisa was shaking uncontrollably. I sat down in the bathroom, cross-legged. Lisa lumbered over to me slowly. She put her paw into my lap, and seeing that I did not reject, she nuzzled up to me. When I moved my hand up to pet her, she ran away repeatedly, remembering the beating that I had just given her. And then she would come back. Eventually, she crawled her entire bruised and bloodied body into my lap and collapsed with her face into my chest. I love you, Dad, she said to me in a language more ancient than words. Do you still love me? I burst into tears. The shame I felt for having a dangerous dog was quickly replaced with the shame of having violated my promises to Lisa. I promised that no one would hurt her. Yet I battered her face with my own hand. I promised her a family, but things got tough. I was ready to dispose of her like a piece of furniture. I promised her that everyone would love her. And even I had lost that love in a moment of anger. In the days that followed, I realized my own complicity in the brutal attack. Pit bulls, it turns out, have been designed by human beings to become the perfect fighting dogs. Breeders, starting in the United Kingdom in the early 1800s, selected dogs that showed aggression to other dogs, even in the face of pain and death, and allowed only the most violent to survive and breed. In one of the many cruel twists of human exploitation of animals, the dogs that ended up doing best in this genetic contest had another trait, loyalty to their masters. They fought fiercely, sometimes to the point of death, because they loved their families more than they loved their own life. Understanding the history of pit bulls led to a reassessment of what unfolded on that summer morning at the beach. What I originally saw as an unprovoked act of brutality became an act of misplaced loyalty. On that day, Lisa was in an uncertain place, a beach for a dog who did not know how to swim. 
Lisa had the memory of a fight in the dog park still hanging in her mind. She saw a stranger charging and barking at one of her family members, her sister Natalie. And she reacted instinctively in the way that her ancestors had been trained and bred to react for hundreds of years. She reacted to protect her family. I had punished her for that loyalty and for my own negligence in bringing an unstable dog to a public space. I did not understand all this history when Lisa crawled into my lap on that fateful day in Chicago. But I understood the most important part. What Lisa did, she did for love. Everybody still loves you, Lisa, I said through my tears as I held her tight against me, especially your dad. The next 13 years of Lisa's life had many challenges, and I made many mistakes. It took another year before I realized I needed to muzzle her on every walk. It took two years before I understood her triggers, for example, keeping her away from windows or doors where other dogs could be on the other side. It took three years for me to learn how to expertly break up a dog fight with a break stick. There are... There were other victims of my mistakes in those years, including Lisa's own sister, Natalie. But I did learn, eventually. In the last 10 years or so of Lisa's life, once I finally understood Lisa's history and her point of view, there was not a single injury to another dog. But the most important lessons I learned were not about handling a dangerous dog, but about the nature of love. For one, I learned that love is forgiving. Lisa taught me in that moment in the bathroom that you can love someone who has wronged you. Her simple act of love, crawling into my lap despite her fear, inspired me to love and forgive her as well. But it had far-reaching effects beyond that day. I started to wonder about who else I had judged too quickly. I hated my fellow human beings at that point in my life. I had few friends and even fewer loved ones. In 2007, I was not on good terms with my human family, and I'd never even had a girlfriend or even been on a date. But Lisa's act of radical forgiveness made me wonder what other situations or people I might have misjudged. She inspired me to look at my ancestors' traditions in Buddhism, to see that empathy for all beings, even the, quote, bad ones, is necessary for a good life. Lisa also taught me that love is brave. Her actions were violent and out of control, but I had a respect for her willingness to risk life and limb for her family, even if that fervor had been radically misplaced. She ran out into the water despite not knowing how to swim. She took a beating in an effort to protect her family and her dad. Her sheer physical courage was something to behold. But more importantly, Lisa was emotionally brave. She came back to me even when I had caused her devastating pain. She knew there was a chance I would strike her again, yet she crawled into my lap, showing incredible levels of trust and vulnerability, even as she was shaking in fear. How many of us would have that emotional courage? I aspire to do the same with people who have caused me harm and fear, to be brave enough to reconnect, to trust, yes, even to love those who have done me wrong. 
But the most important lesson Lisa taught me is that love is forever. I don't mean that in the Disney movie way. Romantic feelings can come and go. But the genuine connections we form with other beings, human or non-human, the ties of empathy and friendship and understanding that go to the core of who we are, those connections must endure forever if our love is true. We live in a world of disconnection and impermanence. Social scientists have been asking the question, how many confidence do you have to people across the country for many decades? And the number of people who today respond to that question negatively has tripled. And the most common answer is now zero. Zero confidence. I wasn't aware of all this when Lisa showed me that love is forever. But on some level, it didn't matter. Lisa intuitively understood the importance of demonstrating that her love for me was permanent, even if I had made a terrible mistake. And she taught me to try to do the same. Every day, I aspire to be as committed to the people I love as Lisa was. And someday, because of how much she inspired and taught me, maybe I'll get there. This blog has been a long time in the coming, and it would have probably waited even longer if not for Lisa's passing. I've been feeling lost for many months. The level of disinformation and distrust in the world has left me feeling pessimistic as to my personal role in movements for change. But part of processing grief and death is finding purpose in life. I'm launching this blog now, incomplete though my vision is, because I believe there's something we can learn from the animals of this earth, including Lisa. And it's captured and aligned for my favorite author, Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his most important book, The Brothers Karamazov. And here it is. As a general rule, people, even the wicked, are much more naive and simple-hearted than we suppose. And we ourselves are too. When I read that today, I think of Lisa, but I think of so many others too. The cruel men who herd animals in dodd fighting rings or factory farms. The corporate executives who have wrought so much devastation on our earth. Even the prosecutors who are seeking to put me in prison for acts of conscience. They're all simple at heart. They want safety, comfort, love. Many animal rights advocates see the fundamental problem of this planet as the belief in human supremacy. Or the false idea that they, the animals, are not like us, human beings. This blog will turn that thesis on its head. What the more fundamental problem is that we believe that we, human beings, are not like them, the animals. We are, after all, animals. And like the animals, we have a simple nature, a beautiful nature, that can shine through when our society allows it to do so. We could do so much good if we accepted that simple fact. If we learned to accept our simple animal hearts. Let me end this first blog how I began with a tribute to my best friend. Lisa and I grew up together. We spent almost every waking moment together. And I will not see her in physical form again. But she will live on through what she taught me, to see the good in everyone. And today, and every day until the end of the year, I will share on this blog some of the things I've learned from her and from others. In her honor, a blog post every day, even if I'm in prison until January 1st, 2022.
That will be my last promise to her. And by fulfilling it and remembering her, our love will live forever. Everybody loves you, Lisa, and we always will. <laughs>